Good morning. Good to see your faces, hear your voices. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 9, and we enter a section of Romans 9 through 11, which is one of the primary reasons that Paul writes Romans. We, we saw when we began our study that uh, Romans has about three levels to it in terms of its purpose for being written. One seems to be very obvious to us that Paul is laying out the fundamentals of the gospel and in a way that addresses the common misunderstandings uh, of his own day. And they happen to be the same misunderstandings of our day. So we're very grateful that we get such a clear exposition of the gospel with rich Old Testament references showing us that this is the same gospel that was revealed by God to his people in the Old Testament. It's just the fulfillment of it in the coming of Christ. So we're grateful for that. But then we saw that there's a secondary layer, and that is that the Roman church consists of Jews and Gentiles. These would be people with two very different ethnic, religious, and ethical backgrounds, very different cultural backgrounds. And Paul teaches over and again, as does Jesus uh, in particular, that the church is to be of Jew and Gentile, is to be of all people, we're to be a family, we're to break down the walls and barriers that come from the constructs of men. And God makes us one family in Jesus Christ. And therefore, in Rome, it was important that these Jews and Gentiles really treated each other as brother and sister. So Paul needs to explain to them how they're to live together. We'll see some of that in Romans 14 and 15 in particular in the ethical section that begins with Romans 12. And shows, Romans 12 through the end shows us roughly the ethical implications of this gospel. Then we saw the third level, which I think is the overarching purpose of Romans, and that is it's a missionary prayer letter. Paul is on his way to Spain. He's writing to the Romans because he's going to stop in Rome on his way to Spain. And while he's in Rome, he wants their prayer support and their financial support. So he's introducing himself and his gospel and his ethics to the Roman Christians saying, this is the gospel I'm going to preach when I go beyond you to the mission field. So uh, that's the ultimate, I think, concern. And that's the reason that he shows us his gospel and the reason he shows us how Jew and Gentile are to get along together. Now, Romans 9 through 11 is known as that section where Paul especially shows how Israel fits into the overall economy of God's salvation. Uh, but if you've been studying with us for these weeks, you see that what we've been studying actually demands this discussion. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, and then you see what Paul's saying in Romans 1 through 8, you see, we need an explanation here. And let me, let me explain what I mean. In the Old Testament, God clearly says that the uh, Israelites are his chosen people. In Amos 3, he says that he foreknew them. Uh, and then you look in Romans 8, and what does he say? He says the church is his elect people, and he foreknew them, okay? Then you have in the Old Testament on several occasions, Israel is called God's son. And then what does Paul say in Romans 8? He says that you have the spirit of, of adoption whereby you call out Abba, Father. You are the sons of God. Uh, he says in Israel that you are the ones who are the heirs of the future physical resurrection. You get that in Ezekiel. You get it in Daniel. And now what does he say? He says that the resurrection is for the church, that they're going to be resurrected to eternal life and live forever with him. He says in the Old Testament that Israel's going to receive the fullness of the Spirit. And what do you get in Romans 6 and 7 and 8? 8 especially. We're the heirs of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see what's happening. All the promises that were given to Israel, Paul has been ascribing to the church. We've got to have an explanation for this. And the question that arises in his readers' minds, and Paul knows it, you know, uh, as John Stott says in his book, In Two Worlds, he explains that preaching, although technically a monologue, he says preaching is always a dialogue because the preacher is anticipating the questions and the objections that are coming up in his hearers. So 
you know, when you're really interested in a sermon or a teaching of some kind or a lecture, it's because he's, he's anticipating your questions. He's asking your questions for you. So oh, in your Sunday school lessons or small group leadership, you want to be aware of that. You're supposed to anticipate what the objections are coming this way and have a little fight with yourself. That's, that's where the tension comes from. Well, we've already seen in Romans 6, for example, Paul anticipates questions. Romans 7 and 8, he anticipates questions. He's anticipating this one. So his Jewish audience in Rome is scratching their heads saying, all this stuff you're telling about, not just us, but these Gentiles who are in church with us, you're letting them receive these promises too. How does this fit with the Old Testament? And the question that comes up then, has God broken promises? Uh, we sang, great is thy faithfulness this morning. What is faithfulness? It's consistency with whom you claim to be. Our consistency or keeping the promises that you've made. That's being faithful. So is God faithful or not? It looks like he made a whole array of promises in the Old Testament, and now he's violating them. So that's the big question that's coming up. The question, although it seems as though the question is, how does Israel fit into the economy of God's salvation plan? The real question is, is God faithful? Can he pull this off? Can he have given all these promises to national Israel and now he's going to ascribe them to a different group that we find out, of course, over time is dominantly Gentile. So has he abandoned Israel? Has he given up on his promises of the Old Testament? That's the big question. So now in Romans 9 through 11, before we read 9, let me, let me just say here's the general order. It, just to really simplify it, the three chapters represent three basic ideas in Paul's argument. And the argument runs all the way through 9 through 11. So if you're going to understand 9, you have to understand it in context of 9 through 11. Just like if you understand 9 through 11, you have to understand it in context of 1 through 11. Okay, so we're, we're looking in concentric circles, and that's the way you should look at any literature. It's immediate context, it's general context, and then the broader context. So in the immediate context of 9 through 11, here's the, here's the sequence of the argument. In chapter 9, what we're studying today, Paul is showing in a real clear way, God is not a liar. God has not broken his promises. And we're going to see how he explains that. How is it that he could have made all these promises to Israel and now it's not applying to, to most of them and it is applying to the Gentiles? He's going to give you the argument. So he addresses that first. God is not unfaithful to his promises to Israel, chapter 9. Now in chapter 10, he's going to turn to Israel and say, God didn't fail, Israel failed. You know, that God revealed himself to them, he called them, and they rejected God. So he's going to say, first of all, God didn't fall, his promises didn't fall, Israel fell. Now when you come to 11, there's some very subtle arguments there, and Paul is going to show us that God is not finished with Israel. Yeah, okay, so there's been some judgment. and There clearly has been. You've heard me say this before. Uh, Judaism is a failed religion because it's a continuation of the rejection of the Messiah. So Judaism is out. There's no promise for anybody involved in Judaism. The only promise is for those who receive Jesus Christ and join his people. So we, we know that's true, but in 11, Paul is going to show us through a subtle argument how God is not finished with Israel. And then you come to this famous verse in verse 26 of chapter 11 where Paul summarizes his whole argument and says, so all Israel is saved. It's an amazing conclusion. So he, after all this argument, his conclusion is God is faithful to the Old Testament promises. All Israel is saved. Now, in order to understand this, we'll have to understand what he means by Israel. And that's a big scholarly debate. I'm going to give you the Sandy Wilson bias, <laughs> which you get every week, as you know. <laughs> so I'm going to show you how I think he means that. One of the difficulties in looking at 9 through 11, as we're going to see, Paul uses Israel in two ways. He uses Israel to mean ethnic, national Israel, the way you normally think of Israel, as a nation and a people uh, in the Old Testament. But then he also uses Israel to say the elect of God or the people of God. And in that sense, we'll see that he means something else. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the church and the state were coterminous. They were the same people, roughly. Now Paul is separating those concepts and saying the state is one thing and then the people of God is another thing. So in the debates about what Paul means about all Israel being saved as his grand uh, denouement, uh, people uh, disagree on what he means by Israel. And you'll see that I'm saying that he means all the true Israel, the spiritual Israel is saved, which means that his promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled. So that's the line of the argument. God has not failed, Israel has failed, and God is not finished with Israel, chapters 9, 10, 11. And then, of course, he concludes with this grand doxology. Oh, the wisdom of God. Look how he's, what he's done in our salvation. And then we move into the ethical portion. So we'll take these next uh, three or four uh, Thursdays to dig into this because as we dig into it, there are obviously some very important issues that have to do with current day Israel. How do we as Christians relate to current day Judaism, current day Israel? I think this passage really lays the framework for us, lays the foundation for us. Also, in the midst of this argument, in 9 through 11, we come up with some absolute jewels theologically and ethically for us in our lives. So we're not, we don't want to miss any of it. Let's dig in then to Romans 9. We'll read most of the chapter today. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, not done, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says by Moses, I will, will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, 
but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Amen. Okay, first of all, in the midst of all this, let's understand clearly all Israel is loved and respected. All Israel is loved and respected. And here we mean uh, ethnic, national, historic uh, Israel of the Old Testament. So when we say that Judaism is a failed religion, it's a continuation of a rejected religion, we in no way disrespect the ancient heritage that was given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. That's what Paul is saying here. If there's anyone who is confronting the Jewish heart and mind over and over again, even to his own death, eventually, it is the Apostle Paul. What he's saying here is the reason I do this is because I love my kinsmen. I love my relatives. I love my fellow Americans. I love my Israelites. And that's the reason that I'm in their grill. That's the reason I'm sharing the gospel with them. That's the reason that I argue and dispute with them because I want them to know the Lord. And here he makes this amazing statement. He says, not only do I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, but look at verse 3. I mean, this verse I've never been able to quite understand. Uh, how, you know, I've, I've been asked before, by someone, would you, if you had a choice of being accursed or having your family come to know Jesus, and a lot of my family doesn't, what would you do? And I have to admit, I'm stumped. I, I see what Paul is saying, but I'm stumped. How can, how can we ever wish ourselves accursed for any reason? The whole purpose of human existence is to know Jesus Christ. How can, how can I say I would take, that I would sacrifice that for anything? I can't understand verse 3. The only way I can attempt to understand it is that Paul is giving a hypothetical here because the fact is he couldn't be accursed for Israel. The only one who can be accursed for Israel is Jesus, and he's already been cursed. So it's a hypothetical. There's no way Paul could do that. So if there's no way I could actually do it, okay, well, maybe I can think about it. Uh, that's the only way I can enter into verse 3. But I'll tell you this. What Paul shows me is how I'm supposed to love my own family how I'm supposed to love my own city, how I'm supposed to love my own countrymen. And if I love them, I will behave toward them like Paul has been behaving toward the Israelites. So no patronizing allowed. And one of the dangers of our treating our Jewish friends, maybe some of you here who, are, who have a Jewish background and have not yet received Jesus Christ, the worst thing we could do is to be patronizing toward you and try to act as though, well, we're all going in the same direction. That's not what Paul was saying to his family. That's not what he was saying to his countrymen. We're going in two different directions, and you need to turn and repent and receive the Messiah. Why? I want you in heaven with me. And so if, if I believe what I believe, I must share it clearly. I mean, I, I was uh, with a, a Jewish rabbi some years ago, and he said, you know, uh, different Christians have different theology, but he said the worst, one, uh, the worst of them all are those who believe in replacement theology. I said, well, I think I knew what he meant. And I said, well, you tell me what you mean by replacement theology. And he said, well, it's the theology that the church is replacing national Israel and all the promises that they have in the Old Testament. And I just said to him, I'm one of those who has the worst theology you can imagine that. And the reason I do, I said to my rabbi friend, I said, because that's exactly what Jesus teaches and what his apostles teach. I didn't make this up. I don't hate Jews. I love Jews. And I said, and the apostle Paul loved his kinsmen. And that's what he taught, that the promises of God have gone from a national group to a group of Jews and Gentiles who are in Messiah. I said, that's the reason I long for you to give your life to Christ. So gentlemen, you don't ever back off of the call of the gospel upon everybody. And the call is clarion clear 
And the gospel is demanding that you leave all your traditions behind if you have to in order to have Jesus only, Jesus the Messiah. And so Paul is saying, my ministry of confrontation in the synagogue over 30 years of ministry is not because I hate people. It's because I desperately love them. And I find myself challenged. There are times when, you know, you just get so frustrated with your family members who make fun of you because you're a Christian, certainly don't understand you in your faith, and you feel increasingly isolated sometimes from them. And I look at this, and I, I look at sorrow and unceasing anguish. And I look at him saying, if it were possible, I would be accursed on their behalf. Now, there's a challenge for us. So whenever we begin this discussion or any other discussion about uh, uh, Israelite lost people or Gentile lost people, let's be sure that we not speak of them in disparaging and disrespectful terms, but in very, very loving terms. So uh, we don't respect false religions, but we respect and dearly love those who adhere to false religions. So Paul loved Israel. Secondly, he respected them. And now that he's going to talk about them, he begins, look at verses 4 through 5, by talking about the great heritage that they have. Now, the same would be true if we're talking about Islam. Here in a, in a period when we've, you know, we feel mightily threatened by certain Islamic groups, uh, let's look at Islamic culture. And if you'll be very careful and study history, you'll see that all kinds of great inventions have come out of Islamic culture and that we need to go back and realize that it was actually Islamic culture that preserved much of our knowledge of ancient knowledge. Plato, Aristotle, uh, and, and so on, Socrates, uh, but Plato and Aristotle in their writings were preserved largely by the Islamic libraries. So when we came through the Middle Ages and, and then were uh, into the Great Renaissance and so on, we were borrowing from Muslim cultures. We were recapturing our ancient Western heritage from them. So, and and the, much of the uh, in, uh, first understandings of mathematics uh, come from Islamic culture. So you want to be very careful when you're talking about cultures and pridefully comparing your culture to another culture that, you'd, that we all do our homework. And Paul didn't have to because he grew up in it. He knew the homework. And he says, look, let's acknowledge some things. The, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through which we've all come, the, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are our spiritual fathers. They're the patriarchs. They're Jewish. They, they were part of this nation that God called out. The Old Testament that we have and that we've spent much of our time in Amen studying, who was that given to? It was given to Israel. Israel preserved it. Israel honored it. So many of the traditions that we enjoy, even in the way that we worship, where do we get some of our worship traditions? We get them from the Psalms. We actually get some traditions from the synagogue. It was in the synagogue that people would read the lessons from the scriptures, and then they would sing a song. Well, look at, at structure of liturgy today. We read the word, and we respond in song. It's very much like the synagogue. And look at the great festivals like Passover uh, that inform our communion and so on. I mean, we're, we're rooted deeply in these traditions. And Paul begins his argument by saying, first of all, let me tell you that I love these, these people, my kinsmen. And secondly, let me tell you that I owe them my life. They, they, you know, it's through these people that God has worked in history and preserved for us the, the oral traditions that, that we have that are now written traditions. And yes, of course, they sinned. And yes, of course, they came under God's judgment on a number of occasions. And now finally, with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, they're finally, it's over. God's final judgment on the old Israeli religion. But let's not lose uh, the honor and respect that we have for our forefathers. So that's where he begins in verses 1 through 5. He doesn't want the Gentiles to think for a moment that he's trashing the whole history and tradition of his family. Nor does he want to say to them, you're to despise them. No, you're to be willing to lay down your life for them, which is what I'm willing to do, he says. So that's the beginning of the discussion. And when we talk about anything among us that has to do with ethnic differences or national, different national backgrounds or we come from different religious backgrounds, look, we can't have these discussions. 
without assuring each other, look, before we begin this discussion, I want you to know you're my family. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And when someone knows you're willing to lay down your life for them, now we can talk about truth coming from different perspectives and different ethnic groups and so on. So Paul begins there. It's very, very important in Christian discourse to see how Paul does this. Now, secondly, here's the main point that he's going to make then. After he, after he sets the relational stage and the affectional framework for the discussion, now he goes to his main point, which is neither God nor his promises to Israel have failed. Neither God nor his promises to Israel have failed. Here he makes his main point in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. So let me explain it, he's going to say. Here's my thesis. The word of God has not failed, and God is faithful to all of his promises. Great is thy faithfulness. That's the thesis that he's going to prove. Now let's begin with A, and there, there are several points we want to look at here, uh, two large points. The first one is this in verses 6 through 13. God's promises were always for the elect remnant. God's promises always in the Old Testament were for the elect remnant in Israel. This is an important and vital point to understand how Paul can take all these promises of the Old Testament and lavish them upon the church. He's saying, you thought the promises applied to every single physical descendant of Abraham. Wrong. You misunderstood. You misunderstood your Old Testament. So Paul, once again, like he always does, he's going to give us some good Old Testament lessons here because the rabbis had, had confused the people. They had taught them from the Old Testament wrongly, which led them into trouble in the first place. Paul's going to go back and show us the true Old Testament teaching. Now, as an example, I've listed there several verses in Isaiah, Jeremiah, even Micah, and there are many other places in the prophets, but especially in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah's own son, uh, Sher Jashub, uh, means uh, that uh, one who is uh, waiting for the remnant or I'm sorry, a remnant will return. That's what his son's name means. So Isaiah's theology is, is what we call remnant theology. And he's showing that with the Assyrians coming and capturing the northern kingdom very violently, and then in the future from Isaiah, he's predicting that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the southern king very violently. Uh, he's showing how... Uh, only a, a remnant will remain. And he's showing that God is faithful to his remnant. Look, for example, uh, uh, in, leave your finger there in Romans, but turn to Isaiah 6. You remember the famous call of Isaiah, you know, uh, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God tells him to go preach to people who are not going to understand. They'll hear, but they'll not understand. They'll see, but they'll not perceive. Verse 9, and Isaiah is saying, hey, thanks a lot, Lord. You're sending me on this mission, and you're telling me ahead of time that my preaching is going to make them worse. Great. It's hard enough when you're promised there'll be a few converts in your ministry, but now Isaiah's promised he's just going to harden everybody's heart through his preaching. Thanks a lot. Well, why would Isaiah go on such a ministry? Because he saw the Lord high and lifted up. That's why. He saw the holiness of Christ, and he once again saw the forgiveness of his sins. So when you have a vision of the glory of God and you know that he's forgiven you, he asks whatever he wants, and we do it, no matter what the cost is. That's what Isaiah is doing. Now, if you'll look on down in the bottom of the chapter, this is on page 1252. Uh, look at chapter 11. I mean, verse 11, and Isaiah asks a logical question. Lord, how long am I going to do this? How long, O oh Lord? And look what God says. He says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So Isaiah, look, I'm, I'm bringing judgment. 
and you happen to be my witness during a period of judgment. And I, I don't know. You know, when I look at our nation, I mean, I'm just flabbergasted at this political campaign. I've hearing and seeing things I never would have imagined, even 10 years ago, that would be said and people would get by with it and actually gain popularity by saying it. It's just beyond my wildest nightmare uh, that, that where we are. So I have no idea where we're going. And it may be, that especially some of you younger men, are, are going to be messengers of God during a time of judgment. I don't know. But if you are, take what God gives you and run with it because you've seen the glory of God and you know His forgiveness. So let's go. Let's do what He says. But read the next verse. And He says, verse 13, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So in a time of severe judgment, God is saying, I'm going to leave you a stump. And that's all you're going to have. And it'll be a tenth of the total tree. So it, a tithe. So God's tithing. So all 90% of Israel is rejected, it seems. And he leaves a stump. Now, of course, in this case, unlike some of our stumps, this, from this stump, the tree can grow again. And it does. God will be faithful. That's the point that Isaiah is making. Back to Romans 9. He's saying that all Israel is not Israel. We have to remember that God's promises were always for the elect. And if, if you look in Romans 11, for example, you see the same sort of idea in verse 5. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Here's what Paul is saying. Just as in Isaiah, when God brought judgment and chopped off the tree and left a stump, that's exactly what he's doing right now with Israel. The larger part of Israel is being rejected. Why? Same reasons that they were rejected in Isaiah. Their wickedness, their rejection of God, their idolatry, setting up their own righteousness, not trusting in the, the love and grace of God. And he's saying, right here in the first century A.D., same thing is happening. The tree's being chopped off, and he's leaving a stump. Now, we're going to see in Romans 11, he says, you wild Gentiles, which is probably most of this room, you're, you got grafted into the stump. So you were a bunch of wild olive branches, and you got grafted into this stump. That's how you got here. Don't forget the stump. Paul already says, let's not forget who they are. They're the ones who brought us the, the word of God and the patriarchs and the traditions and so on and so forth. So uh, that's what Paul is saying. That's what's happening right now, he says. And you can't understand the inclusion of the Gentiles without understanding the Isaiah remnant principle. Okay? So God's promises were always for the elect remnant. Now, in verses 6b through 8, underneath this idea, notice that Paul makes this very clear. He's going to show us the minor premises that contribute to this major premise that the promises were always only for the elect. He says, children of flesh are not always children of promise. Children of flesh are not always children of promise. So he said, look, you can go back to the very first patriarch and you see this happening. He said that God called Abraham and made promises to him about his genera the generation following him, didn't he? He said, I'll make a covenant with you. I'll establish a covenant with you, with you and your children. You remember this? Genesis 17. We cite it often at baptisms in the Presbyterian church because God was creating the covenant family, just like he has now. But then look what the argument Paul is going to make. He says, but do you remember? Abraham had two children. He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. And they're both physical descendants of Abraham. They were both baptized, if you will. They were both circumcised. They, uh, they received the sign of the covenant. So they had the outward sign of inclusion in the visible body of God's people. But one of them was rejected, who had just as much physical lineage from Abraham as the other. But it is through Isaac, says the Lord, that my seed will come. 
Isaac is the chosen child. So Abraham is saying, look, my Jewish friends, please just read your own Bible. You should know that from the very beginning, the promise to Abraham did not necessarily apply to all physical descendants. It's true today. For those of us who, who baptize families, who believe in household covenant uh, inauguration into the visible body of Christ, and we baptize our children, some of them are rejected eventually. And that's exactly the way it's worked throughout history. So there's no guarantee, no philosophical certainty that a baptized child is going to be a believer. Now, generally they are. Solomon says, here's an observation I would make. Raise up a child the way he shall go, and when he was old, he'll not depart from it. And if I had a show of hands of here, of how many of you were brought up by Christian parents, it would be an overwhelming majority. So there, God works through families. But that doesn't mean there's some magical guarantee that you just do some outward sign or you grow up in a physical family and you're going to become a Christian. That's ridiculous. And so those of you who have children who are astray right now spiritually, you'd be making a very foolish mistake if you just say, well, I just know God's promised that he's going to, no, you better be careful. A physical descendant is not necessarily a believer. You better maybe redouble your prayers for that child because we don't know. We may, we may think and be able to say, you know, it seems to me that that's one thing, but to say God's promised, that's another, and he hasn't. And Paul makes it clear right here. He says, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named, not Ishmael. And of course, this is very interesting, isn't it? For those who hold to the Quran, they change everything in the Old Testament so that Ishmael is the one through whom the blessing is given. It's really, how can you say these religions have the same God? They just contort everything. One has three persons in the Godhead. One has one person in the Godhead. One believes the promise comes through Isaac, the other through Ishmael. One believes that salvation is by grace. One believes it's by uh, having more good works than bad works. Tell me that's the same God. I mean, that's impossible. Um, so children of the flesh are not always children of promise. And Paul makes this clear, especially in Galatians, where he shows that uh, in Galatians 3.29, he basically says, that those who believe in Jesus Christ are the children of Abraham. So just as God said the promise was coming through Isaac, not Ishmael, now he's saying the promise comes through the ultimate seed of Abraham, who is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So all the blessings of Abraham now come through that line through Jesus. And the way you get into Jesus is not by being his physical descendant, right? The man wasn't married, had no children. So you come, you come engrafted into Jesus through faith, and now you become the child of Abraham. And all the promises of the Old Testament now devolve upon you because you're in the seed of Abraham, in the line of blessing. That's Paul's argument in Galatians. Same kind of argument he's got here. Now notice secondly, verses 9 through 13, Paul is saying children of promise are elected by God. So you want to know why it's Isaac instead of Ishmael? Because God ultimately chose him. Now, Isaac chose God, but God is saying here through the apostle that God, first of all, chose them. And he goes on to say, this was true not only of Isaac, but it was true of Jacob. And God even reversed the order. Normally, the younger serves the older. And Jacob was the second of the twins born. So normally, Esau would be the one who would have priority. But God reversed it. Why did he reverse it? Paul says he reversed it to show you that it's by election. God picks. And we're not going to just inherit something through human tradition or family tradition. It's God himself. Who's choosing? And he look at this as you couldn't have a clear statement about the unconditionality of election. That is, the election resides in God's heart alone and in nothing in yourself than this text. This is the locus classicus for unconditional election. Because Paul is absolutely making that point here. And he's saying, let me be very clear about this. Before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, and of course both of them did a lot of bad stuff, bad stuff, J Jacob more than Esau. 
before they had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. What would that purpose be? The glory of God alone in his election. In order that that purpose might stand. Before they were born, had done anything that would deserve God's response one way or the other. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And of course, he's quoting Malachi 1.6. And when Malachi addresses the returning Israelites from Babylon who are trying to reestablish community in Jerusalem, and they've got all kinds of problems, marital problems, children problems, child-rearing problems, worship problems, uh, clergy problems. They've got all kinds of problems. But God starts by reminding them that they're his people. Uh, I mean, Malachi starts by reminding them that they're God's people. And he says, you remember, these Edomites who are the sons of Esau, they may say they're going to reestablish their society and destroy you. Forget it. God's already pronounced their destruction, and he's pronounced your survival and your flourishing. So remember he said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So from the very beginning, before Malachi excoriates the Israelites for their moral failures, he reminds them of God's love for them. And you and I have to have the same assurance. So predestination and election is to assure us of God's commitment to us. Now we can hear his thundering law and, and our need to submit to him because we know that he loves us as our father. Now some people say, how could he hate a human being before he's even born? Well, that's a question. I think Stott says that uh, he's just simply quoting Malachi and he's using it uh, like, like Jesus does in Luke when he says, unless a man hates his father and mother, he cannot follow me. And the parallels in Matthew 10 when Jesus says on a similar occasion, if a man does not love me more than his father and mother, he cannot follow me. So the Stott gives that explanation. I would simply say this, that when you go back to real foundational principles, you have to understand that we're all sinners. Sinners are absolutely odious to God. It's, it's like, I mean, we... You can't imagine how unattractive that is and how he hates sin. And he hates the sinner who has no payment offered for his sin. In other words, if you're out of covenant with God, he does hate you in that sense and you will be destroyed. So the mystery is not, frankly, that he hates Esau. We should theologically understand that. Emotionally, it's difficult. But theologically, we should grasp that. Esau's a sinner. Of course God should hate him. The part that's a mystery is that he loves Jacob. Why in the world would he love that rascal? He's far worse than Esau. We saw that in the story when we studied Genesis some years ago. Why in the world would God love Jacob? It's called grace. Why in the world would he love you? That's the mystery. Uh, that's called grace. And God, Paul is saying here, don't think that it's just physical descendants who are the recipients of the blessings of Abraham. No, it's those whom God has graciously poured out his affection on. The affection, same affection he gave Abraham, who was a moon worshiper for heaven's sakes, and God called him out of that paganism to be the leader of his people. And he's doing the same thing with you. And so he's saying, this is the way it's always been. Don't think that people just you get born into salvation. They get born again into salvation. That's his point. So now let's keep moving along because we're really running out of time here. And, but I've got to get to this point. In verses 14 through 29, Paul then asks the question that you might ask. Is God then unjust? Is there un injustice on God's part? And Paul says, you know, he, he, I, I'm tempted to use a very strong language here, but I won't. He just says, by no means. He's saying, heck no, don't you understand? It's just the opposite. Now, Stott says here that the reason someone would ask this is the question is misconceived. That what you don't understand is that God, the foundation of his salvation is mercy and not justice. And so Paul is responding to that. I tend to prefer John Piper's logic, which happens to be his doctoral thesis. I don't expect that any of you have read it. It's a little dense, and I'm not suggesting it. But it is in print if you want it. Um, and let me see, um, and, and if John Piper gets a copy of this, he'll probably say, 
you butchered my doctoral thesis, but I'm going I'm to give you the Sandy Wilson summary, uh, and, which I think makes sense anyway. So here it is. Here's John's logic. First of all, it is of the essence of God's righteousness that he promotes the glory of his own name. Now, why do I say that? Because the word injustice in Greek is adikia. I guess you'd spell that in English, A-D-I-K-I-A, adikia. That means no righteousness. Dikia is righteousness. So he's saying, is God unrighteous? That's how it could be translated. Piper picks up on that. He says, when you look in the Psalms, you will see that the essence of God's righteousness is to promote his own glory. That is the righteousness of God, that he promote his glory through his own name. And you'll see his name and his righteousness put in close parallel. I've list, listed several psalms there that show you how this works. That his righteousness is promoting the glory of his name, all right? So you ask, is he unrighteous? Well, no, because he's promoting the glory of his own name. Follow the next sequence of thought here. It is of the essence of his name that he is the sovereign God. Why do I say that? Because that's the exact verse that Paul is quoting here. Why does he quote this verse? Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, you've asked too much. If I show you your glory, I'll destroy you. No one sees the face of God. But you hide in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you and I'll pass by you and you can see my backside. But while he passes by, he pronounces his own name. The Lord the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then what does he say? I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. That's of the very essence of his name. The salvation comes from his sovereignty. And so his righteousness is declaring the glory of his name and his name is that he will do as he wish. And then look thirdly then, it is of the essence of his righteousness that he declares on sovereignty. So you're asking me, is God unjust? Oh, contraire, hop along. It's just the opposite. It is in his justice and in his righteousness that he would declare that all of us who are in him come only by virtue of his electing grace, undeserved, unmerited grace of God. That's the argument. So Paul turns around this superficial question, is God unfair or unjust? And he says, you don't know what just is. Let me tell you what just is. It's the declaration of his holy name and the essence of his name is his sovereignty. So enter into that, gentlemen. Now, quickly, underneath this idea, first of all, notice that unconditional election belongs solely to him he says it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And he even says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed. My name, there it is, my name. Might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's his name. And so he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you've hardened your heart. Now I'm going to harden your heart. And the reason is I'm going to get glory for my name. I'm going to display my wrath and my justice on you who, are oppress who is oppressing my people. And I'm going to display my glory through you. Wow. Take off your shoes. And then number two, verses 19 through 24, he says his creatures have no grounds for complaint. You say, well, who can, who can <laughs> why does he find fault in me? Who, who can resist his will? If that's the way it is, what difference does it make? Well, there's a lot that needs to be said there about the confluence of God's sovereignty and our, our own wills and decision-making. All of us make decisions in view of our own motives. We're all free in that sense to make decisions in view of our own motives. And God is completely sovereign, and we can talk about how you put those two together. But here's Paul's answer. You want to complain? What right do you have to complain? Are you the creator? Did you make yourself? Do you have sovereign rights over yourself? Who made you? Shut up. There's the argument. 
So who are you, O man, to complain against God? Does not the potter have rights over his own clay? Now, of course, we know that God breathed the breath of life into that clay. He made us in his own image. We're the crown of his creation. He loves us and cherishes us. But there's another sense in which we need to go back to the foundational principles. You're a creature. So shut your mouth, open your ears, get on your face, worship God, and listen to him. And learn who he is and learn who you are and learn about your relationship. That's what Paul is saying. Final argument. I mean, we can discuss all the ins and outs theologically and philosophically about how determinism and, you know, is it fatalism or determinism or predestinarianism or whatever it is. We can argue about all that. But the final denouement is God's God. You're not. And you must receive his revelation as it really is, the word of God. Then lastly, he says, for those of you who are Jewish... Let me remind you, you were taught this from millennia ago, you know, or seven or eight centuries. Because Hosea was told, told to marry a prostitute, Gomer. She left him again. He was supposed to go get her, and he was supposed to have children. And he was, and he was given the names of these children. One of them would be Lo Ruhamah, no mercy. And then he'd have another child, Lo Ami, not my people. That was the name of his children. No mercy and not my people. And he says, that's what God has done for Israel. These people deserve no mercy and they deserve not to be my people and those are my people. Can't you Jews get it, he says, that from Hosea you can learn how merciful God is toward those who are on the outside and didn't deserve it. He treated you that way. Why won't he treat the Gentiles that way? And he goes on then, of course, to quote uh, uh, Isaiah in the same way. And he's saying this was taught in the Old Testament all along. So here we, we have it then, the argument that God is faithful to his promises. Because if you understand the Old Testament correctly, you realize he was always working through his elect, working toward that seed of Abraham who would one day come, in whom we would then, Jew and Gentile, receive the promises of Abraham and become the Israel of God, both Jew and Gentile. So, in Romans 11, all Israel, Jew and Gentile, all Israel will be saved as promised in the Old Testament. God is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace and mercy. And we have to shut our mouths because these things are way over our heads. There is no one here who can comprehend this. We can only apprehend it and take our shoes off and cover our mouths and worship God. So receive our worship. Receive our thanksgiving for the great gift of the inheritance of the promises to Abraham through simple faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.